Welcome to Episode 5 of City News 680, 30 Years in the Rearview Mirror. I'm Scott Metcalf, former news director at 680. This episode covers the years from 2013 to 2017. Coming up... Yes, I have some look crack cocaine. The incredible story of Mayor Rob Ford reaches a crescendo and a tragic conclusion. But first... I don't know. There's a bunch of, a bunch of gunshots. That is audio of reporter Cormac McSweeney running for his life. On the morning of October 22, 2014, a gunman opened fire on Parliament Hill in Ottawa. Corporal Nathan Cirillo was on ceremonial sentry duty at the National War Memorial when he was shot and killed. The gunman then managed to run into the centre block of the Parliament building where the House of Commons and the Senate chamber are located. Reporter Cormac McSweeney was in the center block at that moment, on the phone with 680 News Editor Betty Harrison, planning out the day's coverage. When the shooting started, Cormac stayed on the phone with Betty and had the presence of mind to turn on his second phone to record the sound of the gunshots and his running commentary. It should be pointed out that Cormac was told by someone that the man had a shotgun when it was actually a rifle but it can be difficult to identify a weapon when the shots are ricocheting and reverberating around the limestone walls and marble floors of the Parliament building. Here's that full audio that Cormac recorded of himself as he ran for cover. I don't know, there's a bunch of, a bunch of gunshots. Where do we go? Where do we go? Where do I go? This way? This way? Okay, thank you. Uh, yeah, are you rolling on me right now? Okay. Um, I'm in I'm in a security office right now. Apparently. Somebody has walked up to the front steps of Parliament Hill with a, a single guy came in with a shotgun. There were, yes, yes, go put me on air right now. It's been almost 10 years since that incident, but of course, Cormac vividly recalls the details. He talked about the events of that day with 680 News Director Amber LeBlanc. I want to take you back to October 22nd, 2014. And can you just talk about um, your morning and how that started and, you know, what kind of day it was before one of the uh, one of the most devastating events in Canadian history happened? So it was caucus day where all the party MPs get together and discuss strategy and political policy debates and things like that behind closed doors. And in the old center block, which is now under construction and, and no one's allowed in it. There's the Hall of Honor, which goes down the center, and you had the official opposition on one side, which at the time was the NDP, and the government on the other side, which was the Conservatives at the time. We had just had in Saint-Jean-sur-Richelieu a um, what was described as a terrorist attack, um, and we didn't get that officially from police at the time. That was from the government, but in the wake of that, I scrummed uh, the... I believe he was a justice minister at the time, um, Peter McKay. Me and a couple of other reporters asked him, like, are you considering 
changing Canada's terrorism laws uh, as a result of what we saw in St. Jean sur Richelieu. And he said, yes, he was examining it. And we were like, whoa, okay. All right. That's very interesting. Um, and after that scrum was over, I sat down on a chair um, and they had these chairs set up in what's called the rotunda sort of roundish room right at the top of the entrance uh, stairway. Um, that is the center of all the hallways leading you to different sides, the Senate, the house of commons, the library of parliament. Um, and I was sitting in the rotunda and I was on the phone with Betty, my editor at the time. And I said, I've got a great story. This is going to be my story for today. Um, oddly enough. And I told her what it was. And while I was on the phone with her, um, all of a sudden I heard somebody yell gun or he's got a gun. And then this loud boom that I still remember my chest shook because of the echo in that old marbled sort of limestone hallway. Um, and rotunda that I was sitting in at the time. And then I saw people running from those stairs, which is just like not maybe 10 to 20 feet in front of me, um, running away from those stairs with just terrified looks on their faces. And they started running down towards the uh, conservative caucus room down a hallway there fleeing. So I got up and kind of ran with them because it clicked very quickly what was happening. Um, obviously somebody yelled gun, there was a gunshot. And then as I was running, I saw some of the prime minister's security detail standing there in front of me and, uh, he pulled a, a gun out and he wasn't pointing it at our direction, but I thought good guy in front of me, bad guy behind me, get down. And, uh, there was a stairway to my left and I ran down it and I saw, a, a global audio technician, uh, dive headfirst down those like marble hard stairs to get out of the way. Um, and we started hearing more gunshots. And of course my editor's freaking out, like what is happening? Um, and then somebody, I I'd hit record as well. While, while this was happening, I hit record on my phone at the time and my other phone I had in my hand talking to my editor and I was able to capture the audio of the chaos that was happening inside Parliament Hill. And then a security guard at the bottom of the stairs put us into a security guard's room and said, stay there. And I said to Betty, put me on live. Uh, and so right then I went live, you know, adrenaline pumping through my body, explaining what was happening. I didn't know anything at that point, uh, whether anybody was injured or not. We later found out that in, the, in that initial gunshot, a security guard had grabbed the barrel of the gun, pushed it to the ground, and uh, Samarin's son was his name. And uh, that's when the gun went off and it shot him in the leg. But if he had not grabbed that gun and pushed it to the ground, I don't know what would have happened because there were a lot of reporters, staff members who were hanging out in the rotunda after what we call caucus ins, getting the MPs on their way into the caucus meeting. And of course, you had the NDP on one side of that hall, the conservatives on the other, the government, the opposition. And as Michael Zihaf Bebo, we later learned, ran down the hall of honor towards the Library of Parliament. Uh, he was being fired at and shot at by security guards um, all while we were trying to figure out what was going on. And um, throughout the day, it was uh, it was just kind of insane. I got moved from room to room as they did security sweeps uh, and we discovered more information. At one point, there was reports that we had five different shooters, but that was based 
unfortunately, on calls that people heard the gunshots. And since Michael C. Happy Bo had um, killed Nathan Cirillo at the National War Memorial first, uh, the gunshot echoed through downtown Ottawa. And they had multiple calls and police at the time didn't know how many of those calls were different shooters, how many were the same shooter, which it ended up being just one shooter, but they didn't know. And it was kind of chaos, fear. And at one point I was locked in a room with several liberal MPs who were on the way to their caucus meeting. They were third party at the time. And I was in the room with the now deputy prime minister, Christia Freeland. And uh, she was a former journalist herself had been, uh, had covered some, interesting stories through her time and uh, doing an interview with her, I had to convince a security guard to let me access their security guard phone in the room so that I could call because my reception was virtually nothing in the basement of the house of commons um, center block. And I had to use the landline on the wall and was doing these interviews where I was basically holding the phone to my ear so I could hear my cues talking, then passing the phone over to a politician who I would interview. They would say what they had to say. Then I'd pull it back and finish my report, um, which was very interesting, a totally different way of doing things. But you kind of work with what you get. You have to, um, you know, be able to adapt. And that's sort of what I did that day. And it was it was an historic day. It was a crazy day. And it wasn't until one or two days later, I think the next day, we were allowed in to the rotunda and we could collect our personal belongings, which because of the police investigation had to remain there. And I remember that night as well, when they were walking us out, myself and several others who were in the rotunda, when Zihap Bibo walked in, uh, we were interviewed by police. We had conversations with police. They took us to a separate uh, building to do those interviews. So they drove us in a police car to get there. Um, and that was really late at night. And then the next morning I was, on again live trying to get the story on the air because they said they were going to bring parliament back and not let this not let this stop the work of democracy sort of standing up against uh, an act of terror and uh, we got our stuff back and it wasn't until i that later that night i got my coat off the chair i was sitting in and i got all my equipment back and uh it was later that night i was sitting with um uh, now my wife, uh, but my girlfriend at the time we were living together and I looked at my coat and I saw a hole and I started cursing. Cause like, Oh, that darn cat that we had, <laughs> I thought the cat had ripped a hole in my jacket and it wasn't until, uh, she was like, no, that's not, that's not a cat scratch. And I put my finger through it. I was like, Oh my God, that's a bullet hole. Uh, so, and, and then I noticed as well, the chair had a bullet hole through, it as well. And they ended up, I, I notified somebody and they took the chair and they, they took it away as evidence as a part of their investigation as well. And they took my coat as well as a part of their investigation. The OPP had to run it because RCMP and the Parliamentary Protective Service at the time uh, were both involved in this shooting. So the OPP took over the investigation. Uh, so it was kind of a, a, a crazy story, uh, one that I had obviously never been involved with uh, to that degree in my life. And uh, I'll never forget it. I have no notes here. I'm, I'm describing all of this from my memory. So it's, um, it's, it's definitely uh, something I'll never forget. You know, talking to Carl Hansky and, and Kevin Meisner about covering, you know, 9-11, um, which is obviously another massive story that kind of changed the world. We kind of talked about how do you process something like that when you are in danger 
and you know, you said your adrenaline kicked in. You you relied on your training. You you started recording. You were working. You know, like when did it hit you at the end of it that I could have been killed? It was dangerous. Like how did you how did you process that, Cormac? Well, you know, I covered a lot of crime when I worked out in Calgary, and so I, in one way, I kind of built a wall around my job and what I had to do, and so I saw heard a lot of gruesome stuff through my general court coverage and uh, crime coverage when I was at the scene or covering a court case with some really gruesome details. And I kind of just blocked certain things out of my mind when I did it. I was like, this is my job, not my personal life. I will observe it in that way. But obviously I have a heart for the people involved in these stories because sometimes it's grieving families, uh, people's lives are ruined. Uh, but you know you kind of bring in a mental block to make sure that you're you're not constantly just bothered by that stuff. I think that sort of changed in my life um partially becoming a parent has changed that for me uh but also um on that day i i I still had that mental block in my head. I was adrenaline pumping all of that, but it was insane because we were nonstop coverage. It was a huge story, obviously. I was on c n n talking to Wolf Blitzer. Uh, about what was going on and what I had gone through. Um, so that was just, that was nuts. Uh, but it wasn't until days later that, you know, the adrenaline was gone. The story started to die down a little bit. Um, and my workflow was not as insane anymore. And it's at those moments of rest where it start, you start to think about it a little bit. Um, but mental health is really important. And, you know, there was a time where people didn't talk about their mental health uh, in the media Um, but you know, you think about those things and I remember talking to somebody once for a little bit to, to just sort of get some stuff off my chest because you, you go through these things and you you think about stuff and, and there's also an odd level of camaraderie, people who you went through that with on parliament Hill, there was a staff member who had worked there and I won't like say who they are, what their role was, but I, I had known them for a while, um, and they were House of Commons staff, not political party staff. And every time we saw each other afterwards, there was like a knowledgeable nod. And sometimes we'd talk about how we were feeling, what we went through, things like that. Um, and, and you kind of built up that experience with other people who were there for it as well. And so talking about those things, not just keeping it bottled up, was really important to make sure like, you know, we, we come to terms with the fact that we all went through something like that. Um, so you know, as a reporter, you sometimes see horrible stuff. You sometimes go through these insane things um, that you no normal person would be going through. And so you got to make sure you also take care of yourself in those scenarios because you could be covering something that's, you know, I've covered a lot of gruesome court cases and you see stuff in court or hear stuff in court that just hits you right to the heart. But then also physically and living something like that uh, in, in the scenario that was the the Parliament Hill shooting um, is a different experience altogether. And either scenario, it's it's important if you need to talk about it, to talk about it with someone, whether it's a friend, uh, someone you went through that sort of stuff with, or even a professional like, you know, mental health is very important. And I think in our industry it, that it was always like, you got to be tough. Um, and it's different now. People talk about it differently now. And that's a good thing because if you keep it bottled up, it, it, it might weigh on you over the years. And it's not, it's, it's not good to just keep it all bottled up. 
That was Parliament Hill reporter Cormac McSweeney talking with 680 News Director Amber LeBlanc about the deadly shooting on Parliament Hill in 2014. The coverage of that event saw 680 win its second-ever International Edward R. Murrow Award. Cormac went to the RTDNA Awards event in New York City to accept the prize on behalf of 680 News. The story of Toronto Mayor Rob Ford could almost be described as Shakespearean. There were multiple elements of comedy and tragedy, and it all played out on the world stage. This episode covers the years from 2013 to 2017. Within that time frame, Mayor Ford admitted to smoking crack cocaine, appeared on the Jimmy Kimmel show, went into rehab, was diagnosed with cancer, and died at the age of 46. During those years, there were many, many stories about Mayor Ford on 680 News. We'll start with this example from November 2013, when 680 News anchor Brian Fisher broke in with this stunning update. All right, this just into 680 News. Uh, revelations from City Hall. Let's check in this afternoon with 680 Charlene Close, who joins us live. Charlene? Just a uh, blockbuster news here from City Hall just uh, seconds ago. The mayor now uh, coming forward and admitting they has, in fact, smoked crack cocaine. Yes, I have smoked crack cocaine. When, but sir? no, do I? Am I an addict? No. When have you have I tried it? Um, probably in one of my drunken stupors, probably approximately about a year ago. I answered your question. You asked the question properly, I'll answer it. So I, I wasn't lying. You didn't ask the correct questions. No, I'm not an addict. And no, I do not um, do drugs. I, I made mistakes in the past, and all I can do is apologize. But it is what it is, and I can't change the past. And I, I can apologize to my family, my friends, my colleagues. And the people of this great city. I Ford says he doesn't recall there being a tape or a video, so he wants to see it to see the state he was in. Now, even with this latest revelation, the mayor has no intention of taking a leave of absence, despite the growing pressure on him to do so. Reporting live at City Hall, Charlene Close, 680 News. Ford became a regular subject of jokes on late-night talk shows in the United States, and a few months later, he appeared as a guest on one of those shows, 680 Political Affairs Editor John Stahl filed this report. This is John Stahl with a look back at the night of March 4th when Mayor Rob Ford accepted an invite to appear on the Jimmy Kimmel Show. How you doing? Doing amazing. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. Why are you dressed like a magician? <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. I am very, very happy that you're here. But why are you here? What good could come of this? Have you ever seen this show? The late night host went on to reveal why nothing good could come from the appearance. I have to say, people seem very angry that I was having you on the show tonight. People from Toronto, uh, on Facebook, on Twitter. This is disgusting. Having our embarrassment of a mayor on your show is a slap to all Torontonians. Really disappointed you're giving this abusive exploiter the time of day, Jimmy. I hope you remember that clown you're about to trot out is a very sick, very bad man. Is there any validity to any of these things? I mean, is that all I got? No, you got a lot of them. (laughs) You may have set a record. uh, I guess they don't talk about uh, all the money I've saved. John Stahl, 680 News. Just a month after that appearance on Jimmy Kimmel, Mayor Ford took a timeout to go into rehab. Then in September of 2014, Rob Ford was diagnosed with cancer. He decided not to seek re-election as mayor, but instead ran to be a city councillor again, and he won. 
He had cancer surgery in 2015, but doctors found another tumor. And on March 22, 2016, Rob Ford died at the age of 46. A number of 680 reporters covered Mayor Ford during those turbulent years. One of those front and center in the media scrums was Momen Qureshi. Momen has vivid memories of that time, including when police announced that they had found the infamous crack cocaine video. Here now is Momen Qureshi in conversation with 680 News Director Amber LeBlanc. You're a City Hall reporter, and um, the Rob Ford years start to happen. When you think back on that, is there one word that kind of comes to mind? Um, madness, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, you know, it was, you know what? It was almost, it's almost unbelievable, except that it actually happened. That's what I always say, you know, um... There was, I, I tell the story all the time in, when I talk to like j- journalism students or new interns that come through. At a certain point in that kind of Rob Ford cycle, they made a Rob Ford bobblehead. Uh, and the money went to like United Way and he sold them and people bought them and they had like, they were limited edition and numbered and stuff. And I bought one. And I didn't buy one because I wanted one. I didn't buy one because I was like a big fan or any of that stuff. I bought one because I thought someday in the future, I'm going to wake up, I'll be 60 or 70 or 80, and I'll wonder if any of that was really real. And I'll open my closet, and I'll take the bobblehead out, and I'll have kind of a solemn moment where I stare at the bobblehead, and I'll be like, oh my god, all that was real. It's really my inception token to let me know that I'm in reality, and that whole kind of crazy 18 months whirlwind at City Hall was a real thing. So it's currently sitting in my closet, and every now and then I just look up at it, and I think, man, that was real. That whole thing happened. Do you remember when it started to get really crazy? I mean, for me, I remember on Halloween of that year when the police chief at the time announced that mm. it was true. And I remember the newsroom going <gasps> and, and and people yeah. uh, freaking out. You know, we're pretty we're a pretty stoic bunch. We 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 deal with a lot of things. But I remember people really freaked that day. And do you do you remember that day and how crazy that was? Oh, yeah, for sure. That that day, what I remember the most is we knew that the chief was holding a news conference, um, and we but we didn't know what was going to be said. And the thing about that time was there was so much unpredictability. It was just so, like, every day, seemingly every hour, the news was changing in a dramatic way. So we knew that the chief was going to talk, but we didn't know if he was going to say anything about the tape or what was going to happen. And I remember when he said that they had the tape and it was real, like you said about our newsroom, an audible like gasp inside the press gallery. Because if you go to City Hall, we have an actual press gallery where all the kind of major news outlets have an office, but it's kind of in one shared space. So like the Toronto Star, the Toronto Sun, the CBC, the Globe, um, us, you know, we're all, all these other outlets, they have offices. And you, each reporter was watching in their collective office and you could hear a collective uh, gasp and almost like a scream or a yelp went out where we were like, oh my God, it's real. And it's, so it was such a surreal moment when that happened um, because it was, you know, months and months of reporting at that point that had been proven to be true. Oh, just reliving that day was wild. And so yeah. what was your relationship with Rob Ford? Like, What was he like, um, you know, kind of behind the scenes or or when you just saw him around City Hall? What was your impression? 
You know, it was really interesting. I, I say this a lot about Rob Ford when we look back at it. He was kind of, you know, a couple of different people all at once because you would see him, you know, in news conferences and sometimes during news conferences he would seem uh, either uncomfortable or out of place. You know, he would be sweating. He sometimes would be fumbling or mumbling over his words. He didn't come off the best in those situations, right, when he was making news conferences. But I would be in situations where we would be at a news conference where he would be in some sort of public space. I remember there was one time where we were in the rotunda at City Hall instead of up in the protocol lounge or in the members lounge where we usually have news conferences. He was in the rotunda. And so there was lots of people around. And again, like the news conference went and it wasn't the best, but, you know, he did it. And then he would walk away and he would go up to members of the public. And when he was around members of the public, it was a whole different thing. He would look people in the eye. If he had met them even one time before, he would remember who they are. He would ask about their mother. How's your mother? How's your father? How's this? How's that? I'll help you. Uh, give my office a call. You know, he was a real kind of like, it was quite amazing to watch him on a one-to-one -one level with constituents. And that was where his rise to power came from, right? It was the fact that he would give out his personal phone number and tell people, if you have an issue, you can call my office. Even if he wasn't the counselor for your ward, he would say, if you've got you know, a power line down, there's a tree on your lawn, uh, there's something wrong with the stop sign in your neighborhood, something, you need something, you can call Rob Ford's office and his office will call you back. And that was really how he connected with the people of Toronto. So it was really interesting to see that. And I remember during the ice storm, which was kind of at the peak of the scandal, remember? It was it was kind of timed out around the same time. He was letting people do one-on-ones with him to talk about the city's response. And he, he kind of said, look, we got to make a deal. You can't ask about anything else. This is strictly about ice storm stuff. And I was like, fine, you know, that's kind of our, that's what we want to know about right now anyway. But again, before we went live, he kind of looked at me and said, how's your family? How's this? How's that? And it was my first and kind of really only uh, like real kind of one-to-one -one personable moment with him but you could see he was kind of a real different person when he had that kind of one-to-one -one interaction people as like Rob Ford versus Mayor Rob Ford or Councillor Rob Ford. What was you know besides Bill Blair talking about the video what was the mm. wildest moment that you had during that time at City Hall? Okay, so there's there's a couple. So I, at this time, things were so crazy. It was myself, Kevin Beisner, and Charlene Close were triple teaming coverage because A, there was just so many angles to the story, and B, you had to be in multiple places at once, right? So one of us was like parked in front of his office, which, you know, everybody, that's like now an iconic kind of image where everybody was crowded out and they had those velvet ropes. Um, one of us would be downstairs in the press gallery kind of going live every half hour, uh, one of us would be maybe like trying to chase down counselors and try to get the reactions or, you know, be at police headquarters or whatever. We'd have to like divvy it up because there was just so much going on at once. But I remember the day that he admitted to using crack cocaine, I wasn't at City Hall yet. I was kind of doing something else and I was standing at the corner of Bay and Bloor and I got a, a breaking news alert from 680 News. And I was standing there with Christine Chubb, who at the time was a, a web editor for us. She wrote for our website. And I handed her the phone with my jaw open when we were both like, oh, my God. And so I knew that any second my phone was going to ring and it was going to be Scott saying, you got to come into City Hall right now. And so uh, I ditched whatever I was doing. I went into City Hall. And within probably like 90 minutes, 
we were inside the mayor's protocol lounge, which if you've, if you've ever seen a news conference from City Hall with the mayor standing with the flags behind him in kind of this white-ish office, that's what that is. And that, that office is meant to hold kind of like briefings that the mayor will hold once a week, but it's meant to be for smaller uh, crowds, right? It's meant to be basically for the press gallery. And the press gallery is basically like, you know, maybe six or seven members, four or five cameras. So like 10 to 12 people. And even that gets crowded. But at this day, it was just absolutely rammed wall to wall. There must have been at least 60 to 70 people in that room, if not more. It was so packed and we were all waiting. We were expecting and thinking that he was going to come out and resign. And the two moments that I remember so clearly about that day is it was so tense and so stressed out that at one point the room just went dead silent as we were waiting for him to come out. I think we had gotten the two minute, you know, the, the, his staff will come out and say, okay, we'll be out in two minutes. And so everything went silent and we're all packed shoulder to shoulder and they're like sardines and we can barely move. And a phone rings and one of the guys up front picks up the phone. He's like, hello, listen, mom, I can't talk right now. And he hung up the phone. And of course that like immediately broke the tension. Everybody started laughing. Uh, it kind of like let the air out a little bit. And then Rob Ford came out. He didn't resign, which kind of surprised everybody and was a little shocking. Uh, and then that was the day where instead of going back into his office, he decided to like plow out the front door of of uh, of the mayor's office. And so he kind of pushed and shoved his way through everybody. And again, me, Kevin and Charlene were kind of standing together and we all got like pushed up against the wall and we were like stuck against the wall because his security was basically shoving people aside left and right because for some reason he decided he wanted to go out the front door rather than back into his office. And it was really uh, kind of pandemonium. And so there was all these kind of side moments uh, that kind of caught the kind of like real kind of circus pandemonium moments around what was happening. That is so wild because, like you said, a certain there's a certain amount of people that are in the press gallery, but this had international attention. I mean, there was people like Jimmy Kimmel, Jay Leno, John Stewart, like everyone oh, was yeah. talking about this. Did you meet people from other outlets that were there covering this? Yeah, um, I remember very clearly two things. One is the day that he, Mayor Ford, admitted uh, came out and the scandal broke. We were all kind of uh, gathered outside of his office and uh, he walked by and I was on my knees and I remember I was wearing this kind of like yellow collared rugby shirt and we did the thing where he just came out, made a statement saying the allegations were false and he walked away and that clip aired on Jimmy Kimmel Live and so it was very weird to see like the back of my head crouched down with my hand up and a mic in his face uh, doing that that part airing on like a comedy show that I watched every night and I was like what is happening in life what is going on and the other is I remember I was walking down the hall one day after we covered a news conference from Ford and uh we were coming around the bend and you know city hall is round so when you leave his office you kind of come around this like wide bending turn and I remember it was with a colleague of mine from another station and sitting there on a chair typing on a laptop was Ivan Watson from CNN. And I remember turning to my colleague and being like, that's Ivan Watson. And she said, I know. And I thought to myself, Ivan Watson, a guy who has been a, a war correspondent, he covered like the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war and like all these like huge global events. 
And he's here at Toronto City Hall to cover this scandal of Mayor Rob Ford. And I was like, you know, again, what is going on? How has this thing spun into this big of a story that Ivan Watson is sitting here uh, typing out a story on his laptop for CNN? It was just like so surreal at certain points. And then, you know, Rob Ford dying of cancer. I mean, that was just such a that was another twist. It was so tragic and just another twist in this story. It was just such a it was such a strange time where any one of those things that happened in that kind of 18 month to two year span would have been kind of a a monumental story of a lifetime where you could do a whole documentary on it. But that 18 months to two years had so many of those like historical moments and him getting cancer and then winning as a counselor and then i remember he would come to city hall you know obviously he was very sick he was going through treatment so he wasn't around as much but the days where he would show up he would show up you know i remember one day he showed up in a red velour tracksuit, and he was very just by himself you know going to his council office which was so different than what we had experienced in the last 18 months when there was the velvet ropes and all the security and the crush of media and then one day it was just kind of three reporters talking to him in the hallway where he was wearing a red tracksuit going to his office as he was taking time away from his cancer treatment. And then, of course, when he died, it was very early in the new council term. Um, and I remember they had that walk from City Hall to the church where they had the memorial service. And again, another kind of surreal moment where thousands of people came out and they did this march from City Hall. And um, Mayor Tory, who was just new in his term, took part and a whole bunch of councillors took part. And um, they eulogized and memorialized this guy. And it was really um, something to kind of just be a fly on the wall and witness. I covered that march that day. And I just remember thinking like, wow, like what a what a what a strange kind of bookend to what we've been through over the last kind of couple of years where um, he's being eulogized and remembered. But also he had kind of this tragic downfall and, and had these demons that he's wrestled with. And then he was sick at the end and. It was just so much to kind of compartmentalize and, and kind of process at the time. And it was really just something that even years later, you know, we're, we're like 10 years removed from it almost at this point. Uh, it's still kind of tough to believe that it all transpired in the way that it did. That was Momin Qureshi and 680 News Director Amber LeBlanc talking about the twists and turns at City Hall during the term of Mayor Rob Ford. Momin mentioned Charlene Close as another reporter who closely covered Mayor Ford. Charlene also talked about her memories of those years with 680 News Director Amber LeBlanc. Being at City Hall and being one of the key reporters on the Rob Ford story. So when I when I mentioned, you know, Rob Ford and the video and everything that happened, you know, what do you what's the first thing that comes to mind? It's uh um I don't, actually, I don't often like to talk about that time simply because it was just, it was all encompassing. It was, it was so overwhelming. It, it, it engulfed us, all of us in the news business, um, the city of Toronto, uh, outside the city of Toronto. My, my parents live in Essex County near Windsor and, and I would dread going to visit because the first thing so how about that mayor and i i know they didn't mean it to be hurtful or anything but 
But you kind of start taking it personally because this is your city and you don't want it to be a joke. And unfortunately, during that time, we became a joke. That is really frustrating, too, because 680 focuses on news you can use. And, you know, and we we had to get away from that because it was it was a circus. And it was almost driven as well by all the American media that was coming down and the website Gawker in New York City and all these places that were like made it even more of a frenzy. I mean, it was very unfortunate that we couldn't ignore it, but it was frustrating because it really did deviate from our real mandate. Yeah, exactly. We weren't able to tell people how their tax dollars were being spent. We weren't able to tell people that, oh, a new park is being built in Scarborough or uh, a community center is going up in Etobicoke or something's happening with the roads in in North York or East York or, or downtown. We couldn't tell them any of that because Rob Ford sucked up the oxygen. Moment was also telling me about a time where you know, you're you guys were in danger. You, Kevin, and Momin at City Hall. Like, tell me about oh, that. Yes, in the in the protocol lounge. It's an office connected to the mayor's office, and it's where small news conferences. Well, where the mayor of the day would come out and and update the media on whatever. And I don't even know what capacity would be. Maybe like I don't know. I think. 30 people could fit in there comfortably, let's say. And there are two doors. There's the one from the mayor's office that enters into this separate office. Um, And then there's another door where the media and public would come in on the other side. And typically, you go out the door you came in. So uh, Rob Ford and his wife, Renata, uh, it was after he had made some comments about his... Uh, his, it, deni- it, his denials. About his denials. Yeah, his denials. And it, it yeah. was just, it was in response to crude remarks he made earlier in the day. And he dragged his wife out. And, you know, it, just looking at her face, you know she did not want to be there. But she stood there and, and, and he spoke and, and, and uh, he apologized I want to say that may have been his 10th apology of his term. And and then that was it. Didn't uh, I don't recall them taking any questions. So typically, you go back out the door, you came in. No, he dragged his wife, grabbed her by the hand, and went pushing his way through the crowd of TV cameras, reporters, uh, uh, you know, newspaper camera and reporters, radio people, and he came pushing his way through. I remember Kevin was standing on one side, Moman was on the other. I was where my equipment was, and that was a safe spot. But next thing you know, I look over and I see uh, Kevin's face getting smushed up against somebody, and then Mo- and, and it was just, it was so unreal. And I remember Kevin actually saying, Mr. Mayor, what are you doing? And then, and the oh. look on Moman's face. And, and like, we were all there just to cover a story and became part of the story. And, and I think one of the, the TV camera people um, got slightly hurt. And, and not, not to make it sound like he didn't accomplish anything. It's just his larger-than-life personality and other things he did clouded 
the good things that he could have done. Yeah. Did that drive you off reporting? Did you want to become an anchor after actually, that? Actually, yes. It was, uh, um, there was uh, less than six months left in the term or something. And uh, our FM music director came to me and asked me if I wanted to read some newscasts for CHFI. And, and, and I said, well, does that mean I'm no longer on the street with reporting? And she says, exactly. I'm like, I'm there. I, it's a lot. It's yeah, a lot. It just, it became because every single day, uh, you just didn't know. And, and it became, how can I serve the people of Toronto? How can I tell, how can I share their stories if, if all I'm doing is standing outside of an elevator? And it really, you know, some other reporters have gone on to big success, uh, you know, um, uh, Washington correspondence and, and another one ended up in New York. Well, no, no, no. I'm, <laughs> I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm good where I am, but, uh, but yes, I, uh, I took a pass on any more reporting on the street anyway. Yeah. Well, hey, and the, it worked out because you are now like a key part of 680 doing our assignment editor. So that's a person that keeps us organized, uh, you know, helps us cover the stories that are important to to the community, which is great. And you're such a, a key conduit in terms of listeners. Like if people actually call the newsroom, chances are you're going to talk to Charlene Close. So yeah, you know, tell me about that. It's funny. Even today I picked up the, the phone and, uh, and a guy says, oh, you're a real person. I'm like, well, what did you expect? <laughs> and I think we are probably if not the only one, one of the few media outlets that actually has people answering the phone on the newsroom. There have been cases where, you know, someone has called and, and, and said to me, um, I live at this apartment building. Our elevator has been out for a week. And there's, not, there's really nothing I can do about it. But I take the information anyway, and I, I see if I can help. You know, am I doing a news story on it? No. But I'm still trying to help. If they've reached the point where they're so frustrated that they think that it deserves media coverage, they need help somehow. Not not necessarily media coverage, but maybe I know how to how to cut through some of the red tape. And I've seen you help countless people by just sending an email and then you have the power of 680 and then... It it does sometimes help people get action, and that's ama- That's an amazing thing. Yeah, it, it is. It is funny uh, how quickly when you've got the the lo- the station logo on your <laughs> on your email signature, how quickly someone gets back to you. <laughs> <laughs> the The fact that we can take this platform to help people is great, and the connection with people. I think in this world, even though you know, there's tons of ways to connect with people. It's kind of going back in the direction where you do want to talk to a human. And so the fact that we're able to offer that 24-7 to people, that's a, that's a, really, that's a really nice thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, I'm not going to lie. A few of the phone calls, you're like, oh, really? You, you know how to use Google. Uh, <laughs> but 90% of the time, you know that it's just, just somebody looking for a little help. And if, and if we can help, then great. That was 680 reporter Charlene Close talking about the challenges of covering Mayor Rob Ford and how her work has evolved since then. 
to become more focused on connecting with and helping the listeners of City News 680. Now, to close out the chapter on Rob Ford, the last word goes to political affairs editor John Stahl, who spent many years covering and interviewing Ford. John filed this report after the death of Rob Ford. Our relationship goes way back, long before he was mayor. In fact, he only became mayor because John Tory decided not to run in 2010. In fact, I was the first one to inform Rob that Tory wasn't running, calling him at 6 in the morning for his reaction only because he would react to any development at City Hall. And that's why we often called him. He was a little bit more outrageous in those days while criticizing the waste at City Hall, but he was absolutely great radio ranting and railing over councillors' office budgets, pointing out that he didn't spend a dime of his. He'd call the place corrupt and incompetent. I couldn't believe what I was hearing most of the time, and he dropped the bomb to register to run for mayor after that call, ramped up the gravy train mantra while appealing not to the establishment, but the littler folks who needed potholes filled and city housing fixed to everybody but his and his family's amazement. He won. And, of course, I called him on that day at 6 in the morning, as usual. Rob Ford, Mayor of Toronto, December 1st. And how does that feel and sound? It feels, <laughs> feels absolutely fantastic. I just can't wait to uh, get into the office and start meeting with people. I'm uh, actually just pulling into City Hall as we speak, so uh, I have a meeting at 7 o'clock. And um, to start meeting with people and getting the job done and getting the city straightened around. And he was good to go for the first couple of years, dumped Transit City on day one, got rid of the $60 car license fee, negotiated a labor contract, avoided a garbage strike before he and his administration began coming off the rails. But in a nutshell, there has never been anybody like him, probably won't be again. A street guy who called everybody buddy, got the little guy who in turn gave it back to him big time. Remembering Rofo, I'm John Stahl. There were two massive weather stories in 2013. In July, there was a torrential rainstorm. In December, a devastating ice storm. On July 8, Toronto was hit with an estimated 126 millimeters of rain. That's about five inches. It caused the worst flooding in the city since Hurricane Hazel in 1954. One big rescue effort involved a GO train that was partially submerged because of flooding on the Don River. 680 reporter Momen Qureshi went to the scene to cover the rescue efforts. It looked like a train trying to make its way through a river. 1,300 people stranded with no air conditioning and windows that don't open. The rescue effort took seven hours as police and fire collected people 20 at a time on tiny rafts. Judy told me people were patient and humanity shone through. There was one person that was having an asthma attack and she didn't have an inhaler, so we asked around and somebody was able to provide their inhaler. We were trying to help each other out. Jessica was excited to see her husband Dan waiting for her when she got off the train. I'm very thankful that he came all the way down here to get me. That's a major husband points, no? Oh, I know. It took two and a half hours. Lights out all the way. At the site of the GO Train rescue, Momen Qureshi, 680 News. At the time, the storm and flooding set a record for the most expensive natural disaster in Ontario. The Insurance Bureau of Canada estimated the damage at more than $850 million. And then, just five months later, just before Christmas, Toronto and other parts of southern Ontario were hit with an ice storm. In the city of Toronto, the freezing rain left about 250,000 customers without power for days. 
The storm started on December 21st, and by the 23rd, just before Christmas, a lot of people were still without power. Here's coverage on 680 News on December 23rd with co-anchors Brian Fisher and Catherine Jatte. Ice storm aftermath, or as one newspaper headline reads this morning, the nightmare before Christmas as hundreds of thousands remain without power in Toronto. The mayor has decided not to call a state of emergency. We will have more on that in just a moment. First six cities, Jamie Pulfer joins us from the Extreme Weather Center with word it could be a Christmas by candlelight for many. Jamie? Yeah, Brian, the push is on to get the power back on. Hundreds of thousands are still affected. That includes Toronto Hydro CEO Anthony Haynes, who now says they're making some progress restoring power to some 75,000 customers. Critical loads are coming back up, and so our next priority are the big wires, making sure that we get the big feeders uh, back up, and which bring thousands and thousands of customers up along with them. Now, he's not giving a commitment as to when power will be fully restored, even suggesting some could be without power beyond Christmas. He says they are asking for help from utilities across the province, even stateside. At this point, more than 200,000 are still without power in the city. That includes Sunnybrook Hospital, but Toronto East General has power restored. From the TTC today, no subway service on the Shepherd SRT lines. No service between Woodbine and Kennedy on the Bloor-Danforth line. Trains also bypassing North York Centre on the Young University Spadina line due to a power outage there. Shuttle buses are running. Streetcars are running as well. Yorkdale says power has been restored. The mall is open today. The shops at Don Mills are closed, though. They have no power. Vaughn Mills is open today, but they're still dealing with power outages on the west side of the mall. Several child care centers closed today. Best to call ahead. All permits canceled for GTA schools. That includes child care programs. At Pearson Airport, more than 60 canceled flights. We have delays as well. Call ahead or check your flight status before going to the airport. And if you're waiting for delivery, good news from Canada Post saying it will try to operate normally today. At the Extreme Weather Centre, Jamie Pulfer, 680 News. Now the storm has forced many to seek shelter inside warming centres. 680's Kevin Meisner joins us live with that story. Kevin. Well, Catherine, it got so cold inside Gaina's house where she has no power and no heat, she simply couldn't feel her hands or feet any longer. And it was even worse for a five year old daughter that's when she made the tough call to pack up and head to the emergency warming center in the dennis timbrel resource center she tells me it was a tough night for her five-year-old she was okay until about three o'clock in the morning four o'clock she started to cry she just wanted to go back home Yes, yes, she still wants to go back home, but we're not able to yet. Now, in many areas, everything is still coated in a layer of ice, tree limbs, power lines, even the sidewalks. Of course, with all that ice, even venturing outside your front door can be a challenge. It's treacherous, and you really got to watch your footing as well as uh, keep an eye out for any dangers like the power lines. Um, But as long as you stay clear, I think... Keep going. <laughs> Near Don Mills in Eglinton, Kevin Meisner, 680 News. 680 News Time, 1038. Well, Mayor Ford is brushing off accusations he should have declared a state of emergency. He told reporters at City Hall this morning he's consulted with all of the main players involved in the storm recovery and cleanup effort. If things would have got worse overnight, then we would be considering calling for a state of emergency. But at this time, there's no reason to do that. We're doing fine as is. And if the province wants to help out and offer their help, we'd be more than happy to take it. The city will hold another briefing at 4 o'clock this afternoon to update the situation. Two days later, on Christmas Day, about 80% of the power had been restored. 
but there were still a few hydro customers left without power as they rang in the new year of 2014. With this being the second last episode in the podcast series, it's time to acknowledge some of the people who are no longer at 680, but who made important contributions over the years. One of those was Rudy Blair. We heard from him in the previous podcast with a story about Gordon Lightfoot. Another is Leslie James, who was a reporter, morning show audio editor, and also film critic. Here's an example of Leslie's on-air work reviewing the movie Argo in 2012. Set during the 1979 Iranian hostage crisis, Argo engrosses from start to finish. I need you to help me make a fake movie. Ben Affleck, who also directs, plays a CIA exfiltration expert charged with coming up with a plan to get six Americans who got out of their embassy and were sheltered by the Canadian ambassador out of Iran. I fly into Tehran. We all fly out together as a film crew. John Goodman is the makeup artist who connects him with a real movie producer, played by Alan Arkin. If I'm doing a fake movie, it's going to be a fake hit. Well played and scripted from start to finish, its postscript was actually amended following protests that Canadian ambassador Ken Taylor's involvement was originally belittled. A must-see. With the year in review, I'm Leslie James, 680 News. Another familiar voice to longtime 680 listeners is Gloria Martin. As the entertainment reporter, Gloria interviewed many, many stars over the years. One of the more interesting ones, perhaps, was Kermit the Frog, who was promoting the new Muppets film back in 2011, along with one of the human stars, Jason Segel. Here's Gloria's report. It's not easy being green. Kermit, you sing so beautifully. Is it something you love to do? Sure, sure. Listen, you can go out on any star-filled night and hear frogs everywhere singing. We get lots of practice when we're kids. Do you have a favorite song? Well, I, I you probably would expect me to say, like, it's not that easy being green. But um, I actually like uh, Suffragette City by David Bowie. Oh, I'm Oh my god, it's amazing. It's magical. <laughs> Amy Adams, Jack Black, Jim Parsons, and many others also joined the Muppets in their new movie adventure. Gloria Martin, 680 News. And one more familiar voice to regular 680 News listeners would be sportscaster Peter Gross. Peter's a very creative character and often came up with novel ways to present the sports. That included this sportscast in 2008 that cleverly incorporated a bunch of Oscar references with the Academy Awards presented the night before. This is a special tribute to the Oscars sportscast. There will be blood of the Maple Leafs blue variety in Matt Sundin's veins tonight when the Leafs skate with the Senators in Canada. Sundin told Cliff Fletcher, I'm not there if you're talking trade. Though many American clubs wanted him, the 37-year-old Sundin held fast to his no-trade clause, meaning the U.S. is no country for old men, though the Eastern promises to exclude Toronto from its playoffs. Atonement for the Raptors as they punish the Knicks 115-92. to They did it with a rat-tat-tat of threes and a rat-tat-tat of twoies. 25 points for Andrea Bargnani. Now the Raptors are gone, baby gone, to run with the Pacers tonight in Indy. Timu Solani was the rightman for the Ducks last night. Three goals and two assists as Anaheim pushed over Chicago 6-3. Janot, that makes Solani the 25th all-time scorer with 546 goals. Calgary skated into the wild 2-1. Manitoba's Jennifer Jones yelling Page playoff is great. Was not intimidated by Alberta's Shannon Clybrink. Jones got away from her to capture the Scotties Tournament of Hearts with a 6-4 victory in the championship game. Tiger Woods wearing his traditional red jersey, La Vie en Rose, won the match play championship, flattening 
Martin Stewart sink 8-7. and seven. When it comes to golf, to coin a phrase, Woods is the American gangster. It's win or nothing. Apparently, Woods was born with that ultimatum. Well, that's my cue. All scores and statistics in this sportscast were tabulated by Price Waterhouse. No writers were injured in the making of this broadcast. Sports at 15 and 45 past every hour or anytime at 680news.com. Peter Gross, Gloria Martin, Leslie James, and Rudy Blair provided a lot of entertaining content during the first 20 years or so of 680 News, and their contributions were always appreciated and will be long remembered by co-workers and listeners. Coming up in the next episode... Good afternoon. This is Thursday, the 12th of March. Here's what you need to know right now. Ontario will close all publicly funded schools for the two weeks after March break amid COVID-19 concerns. That's two million kids out of class for three weeks. COVID changes everything. That's coming up in Episode 6 of City News 680, 30 Years in the Rearview Mirror.